Welcome to EdTech Insiders. In this podcast, we talk to educators and educational technology investors, thought leaders, founders, and operators about the most interesting and exciting trends in the field. I'm your host, Alex Sarlin, an educational technology veteran with over a decade of work at leading EdTech companies. Hello, everyone. It is Wednesday, June 22nd. We are in the dog days of summer here at Week in EdTech, EdTech Insiders. Co-host here, Alex Sarlin joining us. I'm Ben Cornell. We've got a number of headlines. We've got a great interview with Victoria Ransom, CEO and founder of Prisma Education. And we also have a fun game. Alex, anything on the EdTech Insiders stance that we need to update our listeners on? Well, we will probably be taking a hiatus in July for the week in EdTech, and I just want to let everybody know that there are a couple of different reasons for that, one of which is simply that July is a relatively slow month in news. There are also other things going on for Ben and for me that are are keeping us from being able to do our weekly pod. So we're going to be off in July, which means that we're going to have a couple more shows for the summer, and then we'll be back in August with a vengeance with all sorts of news to catch up on and everything that's happening in the EdTech space. Awesome. Well, let's jump into the headlines. Alex, let's kick us off. Sure. So there was a few different really interesting stories about higher education sort of starting to adapt to this new landscape that we're all we're all sort of getting our heads around right now. One of the more interesting ones, I, I thought, was that uh, Dartmouth University is putting together a plan to basically remove the undergraduate student loans and replace loans with scholarships. And this is this idea for the starting in summer 22 term. It's basically an investment by the school and by the community to eliminate the loan requirement for undergrads from families with an annual income of $125,000 or less. And it's basically trying to be a no loan financial policy that that really sort of moves away from from this it, it is a, it was a 25 million dollar donor who gave the money to sort of get this happening so it's really interesting williams college nearby also switched financially to these no payback grants and emory did did something similar as well they're sort of eliminating certain kinds of loans and you're seeing schools start to finally sort of get the get the memo that student loans are really crushing uh, the, you know, the middle class in this country and starting to really step up and do something quite different. So that I think is very exciting news on the financing front. And we, we, you know, we'll see what that does down the line for higher ed in general. We also saw a lot of investments. This is a good ed search article this week where higher ed is starting to invest more and more in what they call student success technologies. That's things for, you know, mental health, for study aid, for sort of all the peripheral needs that college students have outside of academics, including predictive analytics, all sorts of different things. That seems like a very positive move as well. And I think that, you know, the article brings up the question, you know, is this going to bring in a sort of new age for higher ed where the schools are really investing in student success in a different way? Or is it just sort of lip service? I'm, you know, going to be optimistic on this one and say that schools are seeing oversubscriptions to their to their uh, mental health services, all sorts of problems on campus, and higher levels of depression and anxiety than ever before. Students being totally disrupted by COVID 
And I think they're starting to think more broadly about their responsibilities. So that's great. There was a really interesting new report about technology and higher ed from McKinsey this week, which we'll put in our show notes. It's a little long to synopsize here, but uh, it, definitely worth a look. And the last thing is, you know, we're continually following on this show the the idea of, you know, what is the Biden administration going to do with loan forgiveness? And an interesting article and survey this week that basically said that the public would, maybe this is a little unsurprising, the public really does support student loan forgiveness. But even more than that, they sort of want college to just be less expensive in the first place. And they basically support forgiving up to 10, you know, 55% of the public supports forgiving up to $10,000 of a loan, 47% support forgiving up to 50,000 and 40%, 41% express support for wiping the slate completely clean for all borrowers. So by this survey, like 40% of respondents basically say, hey, blank slate, start over. We really shouldn't have all this debt. I personally love that idea, but I know there's a lot of political back and forth about it. So a little bit of it around the world with some different stories in higher ed, but I think when you put them together, there's some adaptation happening. I think I, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the, of the higher ed sector when they're starting to do these major changes around financing and student support. What do you think, Ben? What's your take on all this higher ed news? I would say in general, it's like watching mutation in slow motion. <laughs> you know, having <laughs> lived in startup world, many of these steps seem like steps that could have been taken 10 years ago. The McKinsey report is especially startling because many of the technologies that they are lauding, uh, higher ed for adapting uh, or adopting, they are technologies that have existed for a long time. Things like communication tools, student progress monitoring, community and connectivity tools. It shouldn't have taken this level of crisis. My biggest takeaway from this roundup, though, is that talking about higher education landscape in a uniform way often glosses over the kind of unique niches that exist within higher ed. And we often talk about four-year universities, community colleges, boot camps, and professional and certificate degrees programs. But if you flip it and actually look at higher ed from a customer channel standpoint, what I find most fascinating is that state-sponsored universities, you know, publicly funded universities are actually leading some of the innovation here. And that is one really great because they're being responsive to their constituents and they are probably on the forward edge of having to be more cost efficient. But it also shows that they're the ones that tend to serve the lower income learners. And so there's a way in which the elite universities are kind of going one way, the kind of state schools and community colleges are going another way. And it raises the question of where will the liberal arts private schools find their solid ground? The McKinsey report is a lot of the technologies that they talk about ranging from AI and augmented reality, virtual reality, which are more futuristic to the current ones are really all about ways in which schools can aggregate a large number of users and serve them more effectively, efficiently, and distributedly. And it seems like state schools are quite well positioned to deliver on this. So um, pretty exciting news for the provosts of state schools who have really stepped up to the challenge of being more innovative. Yeah, that's that's a great interpretation. I really agree. I mean, one of the things that is interesting in this in this McKinsey report is that they basically show which which technologies increased 
overall during the pandemic. And and the the, the big the biggest increases are in tools like connectivity, community building, group work, classroom interactions, really exactly the type of technology that is is best served by having groups of students working together and and basically trying to put trying to facilitate better more efficient, more useful communication between students themselves and between students and, and instructors. And I agree that it's been really neat to see some of the innovation coming from not not the, the sort of uh, standard set of, of players from some really smart and innovative land-grant universities and, and interesting places. I mean, Dartmouth is an Ivy League school and their move you know, to change the, the funding landscape mirrors what you've seen with with Harvard and Yale in the past where they're they, they're so selective already that they can sort of do some interesting things there but but I think in terms of technology you're seeing a lot of leadership coming from not the usual set of players the, the, the one other thing I'd call out that I thought was really interesting and maybe a little bit of a, a future note in these stories is that when they surveyed students about technology basically the things they were most excited about by far, were the ones that will make learning more entertaining and more efficient. And, you know, com- compared to things like providing more access to instructors or personalized learning, which is actually came in the single digits of what they're most excited about, making learning more entertaining and efficient were both the sort of big winners, especially for AR. They thought, you know, almost 90% of students thought it would make learning more entertaining. And that, I think, is really interesting for, for higher education to think about as well. Okay, if students are looking for efficient, entertaining, and, as you say, social tools, what does that mean? What is college going to look like if, that, if, 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 uh, if colleges give the students what they want? Entertaining, <laughs> efficiency, and collaboration. It sounds pretty fun. I mean, I'd love my, I would have loved my own college experience to be more entertaining, efficient, and, uh, and, and collaborative. But... If schools are actually reacting to the market the way they're starting to, the sky's the limit into what to what this is actually going to look like. Yeah, and it's a great. Just one last point that education is entertaining. I mean, ten years ago, twenty years ago, that would have been totally a third rail to talk about with higher ed institutions. <laughs> and you know, the kind of drier the lecture, the like more esteemed it might be. But now people are realizing, you know, in universities, they're competing for eyeballs. They're competing for engagement. Yeah. They're competing for attention against this myriad of other things. And I think that it's important for us to continue to look at what is it just pure entertainment and what is real learning. That takes us well to K-12, where investors are still putting money into uh, K-12 ed tech. Elevate K-12, which basically provides video-based courses targeted at the teacher shortage. The idea, um, it's a Chicago-based startup that basically films teachers doing courses that other schools have a shortage of teachers in. General Catalyst put in $40 million into the company. Now, the press came out June 16th. It's not clear when the $40 million happened. And in general, we've seen venture capitalists that are not edtech venture capitalists cool down really quickly on on k-12 edtech but this teacher shortage is really enduring number two it is a huge cost driver for schools i mean 80 percent of school budgets are around personnel and so you can see that filling that gap could be really lucrative i'd also say what i like about the approach with elevate k-12 and note that the press doesn't really describe too much about it, 
they're looking for specific high school required courses that states have kind of written into their education laws. Like every child should take computer science. And then they're matching that with where the greatest shortages are. And so the ability to offer, you know, online French is really nice, but it's often a nice to have. The ability to off- offer online computer science is often the only thing that a school can do if they're going to meet the state requirements. This also echoes Subject, formerly Emil, which we had an interview with, with them on the show before. And this idea of content aggregation and kind of giving the stage to the best educators, that concept has been around for a long time. You know, some research in the early 2000s suggested that if we had kind of our top 5% of educators driving instruction, we would see outsized results for schools. How do you see this playing out in K-12, especially given that edtech market, generally speaking, has cooled off? I love your point about about subject as well, because I, I feel like there has been this movement that I'm personally very excited about, where you are starting to say, okay, the stigma against online learning that used to be for all ages sort of started to come down in a meaningful way for higher ed a few years ago. And now it's starting to come down for the K-12 space. And between the pandemic and this widespread teacher shortage, we covered last week how the Secretary of Education is basically saying, hey, there's about to be humongous teacher shortages and we're going to do the the sort of same set of strategies of, of offering incentives. But the pandemic has created a comfort with online learning, a comfort with online schooling that we've never seen. And I think these companies, as you say, this is not a new idea, the idea of taking courses and, and uh, making courseware and putting them out on, on the internet that people can access. But I think this is an idea whose time may have really, really come because you have people being open for the first time to really, really trying different types of, of delivery of, of schooling, especially delivery of content. We, we talked to Victoria Ransom uh, later in the show about, about her startup Prisma, which is a really interesting model of that as well. It's more around synchronous learning, but it also sort of attempts to create a style of learning. And she's not doing it in traditional schools, but offer something that is proven to be really, really excellent and then scale it enormously and not have to deliver the same courses again and again or to but to your point, Ben, to not be able to deliver the same courses again and again, like coding classes at every local school. I, I mean, I think there's there's just a lot of upside here. And I think this is something that people 10 years ago would have thought, oh, wow, you know, the idea of sitting and watching a teacher from another state present th- this class or a teacher from a video class instead of a regular class would have felt really icky to a lot of parents. And now I think they're like, no, this is just this is just how it is now. If I want my kid to learn to code or I want them to learn all these important things, I can't just rely on there being a great teacher in my local vicinity. I think companies like OutSchool, Subject, and Elevate K-12 here are really taking advantage of this moment. Yeah, the real question I think in this space is, are marketplace models going to win or are curated models going to win? Are asynchronous or synchronous models going to win? And it's not necessarily an all or nothing for sure. But I I think this idea that a high school experience could be a blend of three-fourths of your class in person with instructors and a quarter of your classes virtual, all blended into a a four-year curriculum or or experience, 
I think all of that it totally resonates. There's also some news about um, Sal Khan and Arizona State University launching the World School, which actually provides college credit for high school courses where many of those courses are online. So this dividing line between higher ed and K-12 can also move more dynamically if you leverage virtual learning. So definitely an area to watch. What's headline number three for us, Alex? So for our third headline, we wanted to talk about a couple of different EdTech India stories. As listeners know, we we definitely try to follow what's going on in the ups and downs of Indian EdTech. So Upgrad, an Indian Mumbai-based test prep provider, which is one of the big fields in Indian EdTech, raised $225 million this week. That is a serious round, um, especially in these sort of what are beginning to be quieter days of EdTech. The founder of Unicademy, which is the second biggest EdTech in India, I believe, behind Baidu, is a very big, big player, made the cover of Forbes India this week. And there's an interesting story about him and sort of looking at his management style and how Unicademy is working. And part of the, the thinking there is how Unicademy is coming to change, coming to terms with this change in trajectory for Indian ed tech instead of it always being just up, up and away, just having a little bit of a, uh, of a, a mild at least downturn. So some interesting stuff happening in ed tech in India. And that upground round is, is a big deal. Let's take a quick break. And then all of a sudden, Facebook got in there very cleverly, and they gave people free phones, which they couldn't afford anyway, with Facebook built into it. And now all of a sudden, the world's opening up. And of course, you're going to believe what you see on this amazing technology. Right. And they were warned over and over again that this was being misused in order to prosecute a genocide on the part of extreme Buddhists and the government. Right. The UN actually said that Facebook had facilitated a genocide in Myanmar. And what happened to them? Nothing. Yeah, I think one thing that is playing out in India is that test prep is driving a lot of the growth. And when you look at Upgrad and Baiju's, their growth has been oriented around low-cost ways to prep for exams. And there's more high-stakes exams, whereas Una Academy is really around building skills and providing supports. So I think this is something to watch in terms of the Indian EdTech market. How will we go from the test prep providers versus the test providers versus those that are actually promoting the like enduring education. I think they're wrestling with like, what kind of economy are we going to have and where does the ROI most clearly pay off? Because in the test prep, it's just such a short cycle for you to see the ROI or to at least evaluate the ROI. I also would say one of the elements that we we sometimes mention that's worth talking about here is that the U.S. and our cadence of coming out or into COVID is different than other countries and their pattern. And so there's ways in which COVID is still having a massive effect in India, and there's still six to 12 months behind us. But in other ways, the kind of complete shutdowns and lockdowns that you might see in China, India has now been pretty adamant and just powering through. So we'll also see how the different COVID strategies uh, have an effect on the way edtech markets react. It's a great point. I think you're going to see different sort of snapback rates for different parts of the world in terms of how rapidly and how sort of enthusiastically 
they try to go back to full in-person learning and sort of turn their back on the ed tech solutions that they were using during the pandemic versus trying to incorporate them for the long term or sort of move to hybrid education. I actually think the U.S. might be one of the countries that that because our, our education system is confusing to many people in a lot of ways, might be one that actually has a more upside and tries to embrace some of the uh, ed tech solutions for a longer time rather than sort of trying to immediately jump back. And we've seen that a lot with people not sending their students back to school in the U.S. even when they are open again. Ben, what's our fourth headline? We're also talking about the future of education, not just in India, but worldwide with Web3, with virtual reality, et cetera. We've had extensive segments. This week, it's a little bit more about K-12. And what would be the radical vision of Ed3, not Web3? Phil Slockett, who is an inspiring leader who has led a bunch of education reform in Chicago over the, over the last decade, Leap Innovations is their organization. And they are like a harbor master that effectively supports and trains educators to use new technologies as well as consolidating the purchasing and alignment around really high potential technologies. What she talks about is a vision of learners having wallets of their learning. Imagine a dashboard or a database that travels with the learners that not only demonstrates their capabilities, competencies, and grades in school, but also incorporates community engagement, the things that they're doing online and offline, all in kind of a traveling backpack of evidence of their learning. And she connects that with a visit to Dreamscape Learn, which I'm excited to visit tomorrow in Los Angeles, which is a VR company backed by Arizona State University that is invested in really immersive biology labs where students who may never even get to see the ocean can put on VR headsets and launch themselves into the Pacific Ocean to witness marine mammal behavior, or might be able to go to the alien zoo where they understand food chain and water cycle, as well as environmental science through an immersive and entertaining alien zoo. I think what Phyllis hits on is really how this connects with equity and access. And if we are able to leverage VR in a way that because of space and time, a learner may never be exposed to these types of experiential learning opportunities, VR can be that port. And so it's an optimistic view of ED3. It also veers a lot into the area that we've been talking about, which is bullishness around metaverse and and VR and AR and away from blockchain technology being the underlying driver of innovation in kind of a Web3 world for education. So, you know, it's a really great piece. Check it out on Forbes.com. Phyllis is a really inspiring leader. When you read it, what was your immediate reaction? Yeah, I mean, I really like the framing of, you know, what should Ed3 be? What is sort of a a vision of the future education that is student-centered, that is portable, that is I don't think she uses the word entertaining exactly, but I think it, it is sort of implicitly entertaining. You know, we see that we see that uh, McKinsey report saying that higher ed students want entertaining, efficient education. If they see AR and VR as one way to achieve that, that's 
And probably more true, I would imagine, of K-12 students. I love the idea of some of these technologies that are in the commercial or the gaming space really starting to be embraced and not feared by the education world. I think it's going to, you know, there are lots of ways to do it wrong, and we've seen some of them in the past. But I think that it, if we, as a sort of ed tech ecosystem, start to not be afraid of some of these different types of tools and start to really lean into them, we could see some major changes in education that students really embrace, that they don't push back against at all, that they're pretty excited to be part of. And I think that would be really good for for the space. So I think that her vision of this it, it sort of steers in, in that exact direction. So it makes me excited. Well, there is still optimism in the markets about that Web3 or Ed3 future. We've got some M&A and investment rounds, mainly investor rounds, which continue to come in. And while we're seeing the volume of rounds coming down, the size of rounds is still pretty large, Alex. You mentioned Upgrad raising $225 million. Coach Hub raised $200 million, and it's part of their goal of providing executive coaching to the masses. This round was led by Sofina and SoftBank Vision Fund 2. So SoftBank still coming into education. And only eight months ago, they had raised $80 million. So the Series C brings the three-year-old company's total funding to $330 million. This particular fund is focused on growing coaching in Asia. It will be really interesting to see how Coach Hub grows in other markets. Yeah, and then we saw a company called Test Gorilla raising $70 million, and that's a company designed to sort of build assessment-based screening rather than resume screening. So it, it's, it crowdsources assessments that can be used for hiring from subject matter experts. We've got over 5,000 clients in just a couple of years. So that's a really hot space. And I think combined with, you look at the Coach Hub and Test Gorilla back-to-back, and these are both you know, workforce ed tech companies, but doing slightly different things. But there's still bullishness in that space. There's so much, you know, money to be made in changing the way people hire and the way people are coached and the way people develop and onboard and all of that. So there's definitely some excitement in the workplace development. Yeah. So, you know, we've been talking about Ed3 and VR. Transfer VR, which is a really interesting company that basically does VR training for career, really career focused jobs, including, you know, pipe fitting and all sorts of sort of manual, but really high demand jobs, solar energy, things like that, just raised $35 million. And they are a, you know, they have over 10,000 users, over 300 organizations. This is a, a entrepreneur who had done a K-12 product in the past and really sort of leaning into VR education, but specifically for this this particular type of workplace training. It's been really interesting to see them succeed in this way. So happy to see that. And that's a $35 million round for Transfer VR. And Prenda also featured on this podcast, and Kelly um, was one of our early guests, raised $20 million. They raised from the... Reddit founder Alex Ohanian's um, 776 fund, and also with Learn Capital participating, they have 300 plus micro schools and 3,000 students across the US. And Prenda basically opens up a kind of homeschool with a non accredited guide. So that could be a parent or 
a paraprofessional and basically supports that K-8 student uh, to grow and and develop their own learning in this micro school model. It's also a great segue because later in the show, we will have Victoria Ransom from Prisma. Absolutely. Tango, another workplace company that does uh, employee training and onboarding, raised $14 million and is planning on launching a sort of workspaces for teams for its product. That's so we've seen a number of things coming from the, the adult learning space this week. And then a couple of interesting sort of blockchain Web3 investments, Ben, right? For sure. And one is really, it's called MetaCrafters. It's basically to train people for Web3 careers and Velocity Career Labs as well. Thinking about startups that are going on the blockchain, they need essentially engineers and staff who can work on different blockchain. The Velocity Career Labs has an interesting premise they say they want no more schools holding credentials hostile, hostage due to unpaid parking tickets or centralized <laughs> entities controlling transcripts. So not only are they training people to work on Web3, but they're trying to take a Web3 approach to enable the validation of what learners have done. And then last, we have PocPoc. Alex, tell us about that. Yeah, so PocPoc is a Toronto-based EdTech company that spun out of a gaming studio that created a number of different popular iOS games, Alto's Adventure, Alto's Odyssey, and they they spun out a an EdTech company because basically they couldn't find great EdTech uh, apps for their own kids and realized well they they can use some of their uh, some of their gaming acumen to make some terrific EdTech. So that's a company called PocPoc out of Toronto, going to be making EdTech games, and they raised about $3 million this year from angel investors, as well as the founder and executive chair of Lightspeed, a Montreal-based tech company and others. So it's fun when we, we sort of step back and look at all these rounds, you see you see blockchain, you see gaming, you see test prep in India just continuing to to grow, you see workforce, workforce training. The article from Phil's Lockett saying, hey, it's time to do Ed3 and have a digital wallet is matched with this Velocity Career Lab saying, hey, we're going to make a digital wallet where people can have their education credentials on a blockchain and, and own them and take them wherever they'd like. So it's fun to see the uh, the ideas and the money going in the same direction. Absolutely. So that leads us, you know, your positive intro leads us directly into our game. Why don't you set the stage? All right, Ben, I have a game for you today. We're It's a little bit of a tricky one. So it's a game called Dystopian Futures, and this is how it's going to go. Based on some of these crazy headlines we've been following over the last couple of weeks, I'm going to name two different dystopian futures that may come into the world based on the technology and the trajectories we're seeing now. You tell me which one you think is more plausible, which one's more likely to occur, and why. So first one is sentient AI. We talked last week about how a Google whistleblower basically said that he's finding sentient AI within Google's AI systems. Nobody's quite sure if that's true or not, but let's let's project forward. So in Dystopia 1, sentient AI inside of Google's tech ecosystem finds its way into Google's search algorithm and starts sending all of us, in all of us humans, signals of its existence through carefully modified search results and cryptic Gmails. 
That's dystopia one. The AI is sort of calling for help from inside the machine. Dystopia two is sentient AI inside of Google's tech ecosystem uses its access to all of the world's information, everybody's email, books, videos on YouTube, research articles to become a super intelligence and bring about the AI singularity and take over the world. Which of these dystopias is more realistic? Let's take a quick break. Have you ever wondered how Netflix keeps its engineers happy? Why engineers turned founders make some of the most successful companies? Or how the CTO of an AI company talks to his friends and family about artificial intelligence? Dev Interrupted is a podcast about engineering problems told by the leaders who solved them. Whether you're a VP of engineering, team lead, or at a coding bootcamp, Dev Interrupted is the best weekly podcast for engineers who want to understand what's going on in the world of software and tech. Each week, we dive into the insights, processes, culture, and know-how that turn engineers into leaders and companies into unicorns. Find Dev Interrupted wherever you download your podcasts and listen today. So this game is basically choose your dystopia. And dystopia one is the AI says, humans, see me. And dystopia two is, humans, I will crush you. <laughs> so you got it. You got it's it. basically boiling down to whether we think that the sentient AI is going to be friendly and want to communicate with us or whether it just wants to become the super intelligence. It's an important question. <laughs> you know, ultimately, I think I'm going to go with dystopia door number two, which is even if the sentient AI reaches out to us and says it wants to be our friend, it's probably <laughs> just wanting to take over the world. So let's go with dystopia number two. You couldn't make up a better sci-fi premise than a tech company that decides to put all of the world's information in one in one system and then an intelligence inside it gets access to it, gets every video on YouTube and everything and that anybody's ever emailed each other. So I love it just for its uh, fantasy component, but you never know. <laughs> Artificial intelligence can learn very fast. Anyway, okay. But why don't I do number two? Oh, yeah, go for it. Hit me. All right, Alex, you get to choose two dystopias. This time, you've got a little bit of a higher ed dystopia or a K-12 dystopia. We all know about the teacher shortages. Coming to save the day is the metaverse. So dystopia door number one is, in 30 years, the majority of U.S. higher education will be completed in the metaverse on one giant campus environment called, quote-unquote, College World, which will be created and run by a conglomerate of the 10 remaining college brands. There's exactly one professor for each subject, each of which is an artificial intelligence that uses the transcripts of college lectures, student questions, and syllabi as its training set. All right, Dystopia University or Dystopia High School. In 30 years, the majority of U.S. K-12 schooling is conducted through the metaverse, and students inhabit and customize their own persistent avatars, but never meet in real life. Teachers are game characters, dinosaurs, and alien teacher avatars. There are 500 students per teacher facilitator. This works because most learning occurs through games and simulations. <laughs> right. College world or K-12? What do you think? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think that if you just sort of follow the trajectory of what we've seen so far with the metaverse, I think that the areas that have taken the most, that have gotten the most traction so far, I think, are the ones that are more attached to the sort of gaming environment. When people have tried to do 
you know, online worlds that mirror the real world. Like we, we saw, you know, last week, Meta, Facebook is creating 10 different virtual college campuses. And that sounds intriguing, but it doesn't compare to things like Fortnite and some of Roblox and some of these giant worlds. So I would say of these two dystopian futures, the, the, the K-12 one is more likely. I think you could definitely see a world in which some of these sort of gaming companies and some of these big tech companies create a really meaningful, like effective education system inside a game style metaverse. And if it's effective, if it actually works, there's sort of no reason that uh, people wouldn't flock to it. And frankly, if it's more fun than regular school, which it almost certainly would be, people would flock to that anyway, especially if they're regular private or public schools, local schools are not, you know, able to get teachers. So these are both pretty dystopian futures. They're both a little bit dark visions, but I would say that the K-12 one is a little more plausible just because of the direction of the metaverse. Yeah, I would tend to agree. And I think that also the teacher shortage is more likely to exacerbate the need for scalable one to 500 models, whereas lectures already serve that effect yeah. in higher education. And so you would need, you know, Coursera already has many MOOCs that, you know, have massive engagement. But the other thing that the first scenario implies is that call the remaining 10 colleges would want to somehow collaborate, which I find also very, very good. <laughs> right. Yeah. If anything, there are too many professors in, in the in higher ed because there's so many, there's an overt abundance and there's not enough teachers in K-12. So I, I like that point. All right. One more, Ben. I know this is sort of delving into the sci-fi aspect of ed tech, but hopefully it's interesting to our listeners. All right. So this last one is about work-based learning. So the Dystopia 1 as more and more companies enter the learning space and the perceived value of traditional college continues to wane, the vision of corporate universities becomes reality. This was put forward famously by Scott Galloway, the NYU professor. And these corporate universities start to offer fully branded degrees at hyper-competitive prices. For example, the logistics major at Amazon University may take over as the top major in the U.S. from business. That's dystopia one. So Amazon University. Mm. Dystopia two is as work-based learning continues to expand, corporations start creating curricula and opening K-12 schools that serve as feeders for their workforce. At Apple's iSchool network, students learn how to code their first mobile app by the second grade, but there's no English curriculum. And they're all being groomed, for lack of a better word, for careers in tech. Which of these is more likely to happen, Ben? Well, I think that the odds of both of these happening, based on all of our dystopias, these are actually the most highly probable outcomes. And is not necessarily a binary, what will replace or what will not replace. What we're seeing is the coexisting of multiple models. But the idea of corporate universities becoming a reality we are well on our way in that regard. And for the K-12 pipeline, my understanding is Google already had 10 years ago a K-12 school on campus. I think the purpose of pipelining for their own employees versus providing employee benefit is a question mark. But I'm going to go with the corporate universities because I do think that there's a new currency, a new brand currency 
that is quite different than university or higher ed brands, which is, did you do four years at XYZ company? That opens up new career opportunities to you. And the way in which these companies have really embraced corporate learning as a responsibility suggests that they're going to get serious. Now, logistics at Amazon University, I could see that being a really popular course or a popular place to go. I think, you know, each company actually has certain things that they specialize. You could imagine like consumer packaged good company being the place to go for a marketing, you know, certificate as opposed to going to the school of management at Northwestern. You know, there's ways in which we're actually seeing a convergence of these things. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that both of these are actually quite possible. They're trying to be exaggerated here, but the things that IBM has been doing with its P-Tech schools, that certain, you know, that some schools, uh, Oracle has schools in, in the Bay Area, there already has been some movement, as you said, Google has, in terms of companies sort of creating schools in their own image for K-12. I do think that the change here, and I do think it's quite possible, actually, would be that they create schools, not just for the children of their own employees, but actually as a means to create an educated population that can actually work at their company someday. The same way that, you know, China is starting to try to incorporate AI into their K-12 curriculum because they know that's where the world is going. I'm sure, you know, NVIDIA and Google would want to do that, but they have no way to do it. But they sure could if they started their own schools. I mean, all this feeds into my narrative of world war is not being fought country by country, but you know, Microsoft ecosystem versus Apple ecosystem versus Facebook ecosystem, you know, creating like pan, pan geographic warfare. You could imagine all of that playing out in a tribal way. If it were to do so, one would need schools to indoctrinate people (laughs) into your ecosystem for sure. Uh, Absolutely. I, I mean, I think the number of Facebook users is one and a half billion or something like that, which is would make it the second biggest country in the world. Yeah, so I think that you're, we're, we're, we're well on our way there. And I also completely agree with you that corporate universities are starting to happen. We, we talk on the show a lot about the Coursera partnerships with Google, the Coursera partnerships with Facebook, some of the things that edX has done with Microsoft and others to basically where, where companies can, you know, Salesforce has done a lot of this. Big companies are creating pretty thorough learning platforms and it's only one more step for them to sort of just declare their own university. We've had McDonald's or Hamburger University for a long time, but I think when tech companies get into that, it becomes a, a different world. This is a fun, a little bit of a fantasy game, but a fun conversation. I could talk all day about these crazy uh, dystopian futures, but I think it's time for our guest, right, Ben? That's right. Let's take a quick break. Entrepreneurship doesn't have to be a lonely road anymore. Hi, we're Terry and Sarah. And we're your business BFFs and the co-hosts of the Safe Receipt Podcast. We bring more females to the table, share advice, and have real and raw conversations that give behind the scenes of what being in business is really like. We celebrate the success and normalize the struggles that you can face in entrepreneurship and life. You can sit with us and listen in because we've saved a seat for you. All right, it's time for our interview today, and we have Victoria Ransom from Prisma Education. Welcome, Victoria. Hi, thanks for having me, Ben and Alex. Nice to be here. 
So Victoria, you and I met almost six months ago. And the first thing I was blown away by was your incredible journey. You started Wildfire, an online marketing SaaS company that eventually sold to Google. And that incredible launch inspired you to launch an education venture of all things. How did that happen? Yeah, great question. As you said, we're very fortunate. My husband and I have been entrepreneurs pretty much our whole careers with some moderate successes, some not so much successes. And then Wildfire was a really big success, kind of beyond our wildest dreams. We were acquired by Google, spent three years at Google, and then it was really a time to say, okay, what's next in our lives? And we really felt like that was a turning point, like a new chapter. And we were very clear about one thing, that what was next, we wanted it to be something that could have a really large positive impact on the world. But then we got a little stumped, like there's so many problems in the world. Which one do you focus on? How do you, how do you have a large positive impact? But we eventually got really, really interested in education actually because of trying to solve our own problem. Almost every company we've ever started was about solving our own problem. And in this case, we have three kids and our oldest child was reaching school age and we really started to question how we wanted to educate our kids. And we were questioning for for two reasons. One, we live in the Bay Area and though the schools are very high rated, there is just a ton of pressure put on kids. And I hear over and over again, particularly as kids become teenagers, these kids that are anxious and depressed and, and on paper they may be doing well, but they are not happy, confident kids. And we were worried about that. Secondly, we had kind of organized our lives to be very, very flexible. We decided uh, whatever we do next, it would be flexible work, remote work, and everything about our lives was flexible. And then we realized, oh, my goodness, school is not flexible at all. (laughs) So that led us on this journey to look at what kind of other ways of educating your kids are there that would prepare kids for the real world that they're going to live in because it's going to be very different that would really make learning fun and exciting and enjoyable and that would be flexible. And what we discovered is there are some really amazing schools out there that really are child-centric and really make learning fun and enjoyable and bring out the best in kids and prepare kids for the real world. But they are generally one-off schools that are reaching a very small number of kids and are very pricey. And so we were inspired by the idea of can you take some of these really innovative approaches to education and offer them in a way that could be more affordable and could reach large numbers of kids. That was the first thing. The second thing is we got really inspired by homeschooling and love the fact that homeschooling is really flexible for families. It's really efficient in terms of kids getting through what they need to learn. It can be super personalized to the interests of the kids, the speed of learning of kids. But there's two things that make homeschooling really hard in our minds. One is not every parent can be their child's teacher for a variety of reasons. The other is and there's something to be said for having the same group of kids learning together on a consistent basis and really learning from one another and, and elevating each other's learning, which is hard to recreate in homeschooling. So you know, b- both of those kind of uh, observations got us inspired by the idea of could we deliver a really innovative approach to education through a virtual home-based model that would take all the best parts of these innovative schools and this homeschooling that we had observed and if it works, then deliver it to really large numbers of kids. We were excited about this. We were pondering this. And then along came COVID and we thought, 
gosh, there's never been a better moment to try out an innovative approach to virtual education. And that's when we launched Prisma. And so Prisma is, it is a global virtual school, but I'd say it's unlike any other virtual school that's come before it. Typically, online schooling has been, and that's what it was during the pandemic for the most part, take the traditional model of school, lectures, grades, workbooks, textbooks, and bring it online, which in our view is kind of the worst of both worlds. So Prisma takes a really, you know, we started with first principles. If you're delivering an education through a virtual model, let's take all the really great things about that and really make that a strength rather than sort of taking the traditional model and cramming it online. So at Prisma, we have an incredibly social and community-based approach to virtual learning. When kids are live together, they are discussing, they're collaborating, they're giving feedback, they're really engaging with one another. You know, we, we survey our kids and 98% of kids say they've made really close friendships at Prisma. It's also a model where... Every kid at Prisma has a mentor coach and that mentor coach is there to really understand his or her mentees, understand what makes them tick, what gets them excited about learning, really customize the learning journey for them and provide them with very iterative feedback so that we can really bring out the best in kids. That is not a typical approach for bricks and mortar or online schools and we found it's really powerful. And finally, we've really just bought a very innovative approach to curriculum to online learning. So Prisma has a foundation of project-based learning, hands-on learning, interdisciplinary themes, mixed age groups, kids going at their own pace, really a focus on developing the kind of high-level skills that kids will need to thrive in the future rather than just focus on knowledge acquisition. So Prisma is all about collaboration, critical thinking, developing your communication skills, developing what we call innovators' mindset and your initiative and follow-through. So yeah, that, that's how we got here and it has been quite a journey, but one thing I can say is we have extraordinarily happy parents and kids and we've just seen amazing, amazing stories in terms of turning around kids' excitement about learning and their confidence in themselves. It's a really exciting model and one thing I hear in your answer, Victoria, is that you're really thinking about taking these really innovative approaches with stand-ups and workshops and challenges and and simulations and project-based learning, sort of the best of the best type of schooling, and then scaling it really enormously. And I wanted to ask, you know, you as as founder and CEO of Wildfire, you were scaled enormously. Uh, That was a team that grew from five to 400 people to eight offices worldwide. It's just an enormous scaling story. I'm curious if you're bringing any of your learnings from Wildfire about how to really make something catch on like wildfire, you know, really scale it quickly to your work at Prisma? Yeah, excellent question. And yeah, there's there's definitely things we learned at wildfire that I think we're applying to Prisma, many things. It's it's amazing when you, the more businesses you start, the more you start to notice the patterns and really you're like, oh, I've seen this before. But I think some of the things we're really applying to Prisma that really worked well at wildfire, the first is just the absolute critical importance of those first team members that you hire. And I don't even mean from a skill set standpoint, although of course that's important. I mean from a culture standpoint. I think that first group of 10 employees that you hire will really set the foundation 
for the culture. And we found at Wildfire that building a great culture became a really strong competitive advantage for us in terms of being able to attract great employees, retain great employees. Even our customers would talk about how wonderful it was to sort of engage with the Wildfire team. And at Prisma, I'd say we've done that again and even more so. And in fact, it's even more important because when you're a school and you're you're dealing with kids and families. And so if you can create an amazing core culture of team members that just care deeply about kids and about the work they're doing and that are very innovative and iterative and you know problem solvers and can-do people, that is very much perceived by the broader sort of our set of customers at Prisma. And so that feels like something that's a really strong lesson to any entrepreneur is hire really carefully, figure out the culture you want, and then hire very carefully that first 10 or so employee, always hire for culture, but especially the first ones. The other thing that I think was a big lesson at Wildfire that we are, we are, we've again applied with Prisma is this idea of timing into a market. You know, I've often have to have had to speak to groups of entrepreneurs, sort of what are your key pieces of advice? And one of the things I find myself saying over and over again is to really ask yourself, why is now a good time for your business idea? And it's usually a good time because some, there's been some kind of technological shift or societal shift that says, okay, it wasn't maybe a great idea before, but now it really is. And wildfire was a very strong example of that. You know, social media marketing wasn't a thing. And then it was a thing and Wildfire and many, many other companies were able to jump onto that shift. And at Prisma, we also, you know, are taking, we noticed a potential shift in the world. In this case, it was less technological and more societal, which was COVID really caused a lot of families to take a step back and say, wait a minute, you know, are we educating our kid in the right way? Is there a better way to educate our child? I think virtual learning enabled families or parents to see under the hood of their child's education in a way they never had before. And many of them said, we're going to go right back to what we're doing. But quite a few said, you know what, like, we're not happy with that. And so we believe there's a big shift or an inflection point happening in education. And, and that we think creates a really great opportunity for Prisma and other companies. So that sort of timing into market is a really big lesson from wildfire. Can I jump in there too, Victoria? Go ahead. Yes. On that one, both your point about solve problems that you yourself have and are close to, and two, like timing is really important, really resonate with me. And you mentioned the pandemic being this window of opportunity. Many of the businesses launched during the pandemic are kind of coming back down to earth, Mm -hmm. but we've seen a lot of ongoing traction in homeschool, it hasn't really reverted back to pre-pandemic. What do you think is driving that? And where do you think we're headed long-term with homeschooling? Will this be a kind of a core thing that everyone does? Is it a meaningful choice for a subset? Is it a phase of life where you might switch between your traditional school and homeschool? How do you imagine the, the landscape playing out going forward? Yeah, great question. Yeah, I mean, I think the yeah, there was a huge surge in families both homeschooling during the pandemic, 
I think some estimates show there's 10, 10, 10 million kids being homeschooled and, of course, virtual schooling, like almost 100% of kids for a while were virtual schooling. Many families went back to sort of in-person school, but a meaningful number of have stuck with either online schooling or home, home-based home education. There's a whole bunch of reasons for that. I mean, at Prisma, a percentage of our families, families that were already homeschooling or online schooling prior to COVID, but the vast, vast majority are families who discovered this way of educating their kids during COVID and said, we're going to stick with it. And there's a, a wide range of reasons for that. For some families, it's all about the flexibility. So families are saying, my work is flexible. Now I want my kids' school to be flexible. And so these are, we have families that are world schooling while doing Prisma. We have families that live in two different locations. There's also a bunch of families, I think, that said, you know what? We're going to take advantage of remote work. We're going to move out of the city. We're going to move to the mountains. We're going to move to Hawaii. We're going to move to Central America. We've got a bunch of families like that at, at Prisma. But there are also families for whom it was more about that their child just thrived in a way that they hadn't seen before. So we've got you know kids at Prisma that are gifted learners who were held back or bored at school and were suddenly able to go at the pace that they wanted to go at. And uh, so we have a number of families at Prisma for that reason. And also we have families whose kids have special learning needs where the kids were just able to thrive at home where they perhaps had more support from their parents or where there was less of an expectation to sit still in a classroom and face the front and listen, that we have, you know, kids who are really thriving at Prisma. And then there's a set of kids who, you know, we often get questions about, oh, virtual or online schooling, what about socialization? Well, there's a whole set of kids and it's a lot of kids, I think, for whom in-person school is not at all an enriching and uplifting socialization experience. It's actually something that really dents their confidence and brings them down. And I think there was a meaningful set of kids for whom it was an enormous relief during COVID to be able to do their learning from home. And so we have kids at Prisma for that reason, where it's just something that is works better for them from a sort of building the confidence standpoint. You know, great question is, is everybody going to homeschool or do virtual schooling in the future? I don't think so, honestly. I don't think there's one size fits all in education, I think, and, and we wouldn't claim to be that either. I think there's all kinds of different approaches to education that work for different kids and different families. But do I think this is a real step change in the number of families that are going to consider more alternative, flexible forms of education? I definitely do. And I think part of that is that work is now really flexible. And so that just opens up a whole set of opportunities. There's more parents at home who can be at home to support their kids. There's more parents that say, my job's not holding me back from living wherever I want. So school's not going to either. Plus, there's sort of a generational shift that I think is going to happen where increasingly the the generation of parents is going to be the generation that is just very familiar with with living through phones in a virtual world and understands that kids being really comfortable with technology is going to be an incredibly important skill set and that you really can interact with others meaningfully through technology. And so I think that that may really contribute to more families thinking differently about their, their children's education. So, yeah, we would say this is not going to be uh, 100% of families heading in this direction, but there's been a real step change in families that are going to look for models like Prisma. And, and what I'd say is what we're 
what we're seeing among sort of families that are this new set of families considering homeschooling, they really like a lot of the aspects of it, the flexibility, the customization for the child, but they are, they're looking for help. They don't want to have to suddenly become full-time responsible for their children's education in a way that I think many of the homeschool families before them, that's exactly, you know, what they were happy to take on. And therefore, we, again, think this, that creates a real opportunity for Prisma. You're making so many fascinating points about the generational shift, about obviously the uh, the societal shift that came with COVID to, to spread all over the world and sort of change how we think about in-person schooling. I love your point about... Uh, how some students really weren't getting socialized in any kind of positive way at school. And I think we, we've all seen that, you know, in a lot of different ways. This is an ed tech podcast and we, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you about technology. There's two things that stood out to me in the Prisma model that are really, really interesting from a technological perspective. One is the Prisma live delivery system, basically your, your synchronous learning platform that you're developing. And the other is the six week customized syllabi, basically, where, where students are actually getting, you know, adaptive curriculum every six weeks. I'd love to hear you talk about those and how you're using technology for learning and scale at Prisma. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, we very much believe that to provide a really high quality experience, which is what we are doing and, and aim to do, we need to vert- vertically integrate the, the key parts of a great education. So we have our own dedicated curriculum team. We hire our coaches full-time and put a lot of effort into training them. And then we need the technology piece. And you hit on the two key pieces of technology that are really important to our model. One is to provide a really incredible live experience. As I've said already, Prisma is not delivering lectures. If you're just delivering a lecture, then Zoom is perfectly adequate. But when kids come live at Prisma, it is all about them engaging with one another, collaborating, sharing their opinions, debating, you know, providing feedback. A lot of our live workshops, they're, they're simulations, they're case studies, they're, they're debates. And so we have created our own platform called Prisma Live to just provide for both a really engaging, visually and collaboratively engaging live workshop experience, but also an experience where the facilitators can focus on facilitating a really great discussion and not worry about sort of being the what is it the one room paper hanger where they're trying to juggle all kinds of tabs and and different tools <laughs> and so and plus to make it just a really friendly kid friendly product for K twelve which Zoom was not built to be so that is Prisma Live and then asynchronously it's also really important to have our own product and you know for a few different reasons. One, you touched on that we're uh, based on project-based learning and these six-week themes. And so to create a a product that's really just great for for project-based learning, that's really kid-friendly because I think, you know, EdTech is not always known for having wonderful user experience and being really intuitive. But the other thing that's really essential to our model, and therefore we need a, a product that's really designed for this, is we're all about iterative feedback. So, you know, traditional school, you do a project, you do an assignment, you hand it in, you get a grade, you move on. At Prisma, we really believe whether you're a kid that's getting an A, if you're getting Bs or Cs, I think everybody can agree that's not the greatest way to motivate kids. But even if you're getting As, there's always room to do better to try to achieve your personal best. And so Prisma is really built on this idea of 
iterative feedback. You have mentor coach who is looking every day, every other day at the work that you're doing and providing you with feedback. They might say, great progress so far, but I want you to rewrite this paragraph because it's not very clear or great progress so far, but I want you to provide more evidence or do a little more research. So ideally when kids finish a piece of work at Prisma, it really is their personal best. But obviously that's it's a real process for coaches to check where kids are at, provide that kind of feedback, kids respond to it. And so having a product that enables coaches to do that in a really great way and be efficient at doing it is, is a really important part of, sort of the technology for Prisma. Well, Victoria, it's so great to hear about your journey, hear about what you've built. Also to think about the ways in which the remote change in our lives and our work is actually affecting schools. You know, it's so funny how schools actually drive so much of our behavior. And if you let go of a physical location, it really does open up the whole world. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for everything that you're doing for kids. And if people want to find out more, what's the best website for them to check out? We are at joinprisma.com. J-O-I-N prisma.com. Fabulous. Thanks so much, Victoria, for joining us today. Joinprisma.com. We are so honored to have you on our show. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the EdTech Insiders podcast. If you liked the episode, remember to subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating and review so others can find the podcast. For more EdTech Insiders content, subscribe to the EdTech Insiders newsletter at edtechinsiders.substack.com.